Welcome to Hero with a Thousand Potions, a gaming podcast where two 30-something gamers examine the storytelling and gameplay of popular and niche RPGs. It's like a book club with experience points. This is season one, and we're talking about Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition, released on the Nintendo Switch in 2020. My name is Tyler, and this is Nate. Nate, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Nate, guess what? What? I'm having a baby. You're having a baby. Oh my gosh. Welcome to the nightmare. <laughs> right. I'm just kidding. Yeah, no, that's okay. Yeah, we we had our first doctor's appointment a week ago today. We've known since November and we're due in July. That's uh, amazing. I'm I'm happy for you. Um for our listeners who don't know, I have a one-year-old, and we were contemplating whether or not he was going to get a good night's sleep tonight so that we could record this. So um, he's great. I love him. Uh, but it is an adventure. And so uh, uh, I'm here if you need any advice or hot tips. I know I know. I am going to need those th- those hot tips. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're older folks. This isn't, you know, you're... <laughs> We're not that old, I guess, but uh, we're certainly not having our kids in our early 20s. And so I'm feeling a little wiser than maybe my parents were when they had me. Yeah, I feel old. Uh, this It makes you, you, you grow <laughs> up fast. Um, like I was uh, a couple of years ago, I still felt like a kid. And now I'm like, oh, wow, I'm dad now. I have the big the big truck that has to carry all the stuff. Right. Uh, Ford F-150, right? Yeah, uh, it's after uh, moving all over the country, it was just kind of like, all right, I'm sick of picking up little U-Haul vans or not being able to get delivered what I need to when I need it. Uh, So I'm like, I I need the truck. Sure. All right, well, we're getting into Chapter 2 of Xenoblade Chronicles here. We wrapped it up with Mm -hmm. uh, a boss battle after collecting those ether cylinders cylinders thank you very much and and then something dramatic happened uh yeah a a jet like i i guess mechon they they say it pretty quickly so i'm not really spoiling anything but uh a jet like mechon uh flies over and alerts the group that uh all is not well. They they kind of immediately come to the conclusion that maybe the the security robots they were fighting a moment earlier were in response to sensing Mechon nearby. So um, yeah, the the party is kind of the position of this facility where we got the cylinders. If it isn't immediately apparent if you're not playing along with us, it, it's on a long mountain climb and a cave. Uh, so when when you're at this place, you're kind of overlooking the city from far away. So the the attacking force is off in the distance. They're not able to respond and assist immediately. And so they're kind of like in this mode of, you know, oh, my God, we got to rush back and help because, you know, this is unheard of. Nate, my first, my gut reaction to seeing that that first mech was, oh, my God, it's... It's Alpha Well Tall, or maybe it's yeah. Well Tall Id, because yeah, it, I... it has oh, those sh- it has those sharp angles on it. It looks menacing. It is a it is a giant robot. Maybe not as giant as as um, Well Tall Id or or Alpha Well Tall. For to filling in filling in some folks, these are these are 
uh, let's say, antagonistic gears in, in the game. As you know, gears Weltall it was Groff's gear, and... Well, excuse me, did I say that? No, yeah, yeah, well, Alpha Weltall was Groff's gear, and Weltall id was, well, id's gear, and they're both um, spiked, sharp edges, very lean and menacing looking, and here we have a sharp, lean, menacing looking uh, gear. Now, those Xeno Gears gears were like skyscraper tall, let's say, but this guy, mm -hmm. he's tall, but he's probably 50 feet tall. Yeah. Um, I have some notes on him too that are a little bit further down, but I, since you brought him up, we might as well talk about it here. Um, Takahashi with Xeno Gears uh, has several times where I've had a very Gundam-esque vibe to it, uh, or like his designs or his inspirations for his gears and things like that. So um, with that being the case, um, this one, to me, you know, first comes off as uh, inspired by Gundam Zeta. And uh, for people who don't know the connection there, Gundam Zeta was a... Um, kind of a series after the first series after the initial one where the the kind of new uh gimmick of that gundam was that it had the ability to transform into a jet-like spacecraft and so that was super cool at the time um i don't know I, i'm assuming that predates transformers and starscream you know um so um but I definitely felt a connection there that uh, whoever designed this uh, with not necessarily the uh, uh, arms and legs form, but just the transformation sequence and the, the kind of screeching in and whatever, I got a strong Gundam Zeta vibe from it when I um, first saw it. Did you? I, I've never seen a Gundam anything before outside of figurines on my friends's shelves yeah. <laughs> i haven't consumed any media uh, i i did watch uh, neon genesis evangelion uh, recently including the very bizarre final movie so so we see the large mechon and he looks kind of like the large antagonist mechon from the battle introductory scene that Dunbin mm. and Dixon and Mumkar engaged with, yeah, and injured Dunbin, and so you kind of wonder is uh, is this the same Mechon or is he from the same series of Mechons? We have no idea what kind of mechanical. I mean, is is this is this the same Mechon? Is he from a factory where there's a hundred like him, or well, how much? Uh, what sense of individuality do, do these mechons have? It isn't really obvious. None of them have spoken a word yet, as far as we can tell, as far as we have seen. And, yeah. Uh, right. And so over the course of the episode, we, we will get an increasing sense of what that might what that might kind of look like. Anyways, um, we cut to some civilians in the, let's say, the commercial district. Or no, I think it's a soldier who, who shouts, one large mechon. 10 carriers and an unknown number of units uh, and and then they they engage the cannons yeah there's there's a lot going on there um first thing i i remember someone saying for uh the the jet mech on that we've been talking about um the quote never seen anything like it or something like that never and seen anything like it 
it makes me wonder, you know, if these are people who are experienced in fighting Mecha at least a year earlier, is this a new generation? Did their previous loss lead them to iterate on their design to become better HOM killers? Um, so a little bit of some of that in there. Um, and then kind of you said they're, they're engaging the, the anti-air uh, defenses and things like that. Um, it appears our colonel... Waluigi was apparently right to be the hard ass that he was because um, when he asks why defenses weren't ready, it, it, it seems like people had gotten complacent and the defenses had languished in light of thinking that they had def defeated the Mechon for good a year earlier. So um, we we perceived him as the you know overbearing... Uh, authority figure that's just riding everybody because that's how he gets his paycheck but seems like he was on to something now he, he does he does seem like it's on to something he issues the the counter attack and uh maybe right before we cut to colonel Wal waluigi here um there is a civilian that hollers this siren it sounds different isn't it siren two nate i gotta ask you what's siren one uh, I believe wasn't it that the 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 debris falling? Um, I don't know if there that's confirmed or mentioned, mm. um, or I'm forgetting it. So, uh, but I would say that there's probably different sirens for different uh, alert levels or threat levels. So, like a passive threat, like falling debris, might be categorized under one thing, and then an like hostile threat of an enemy force uh, coming in would be categorized as another one. Mm -hmm. Indeed. So we get some close-up shots of these carriers, and there's 10 of them, according to an NPC, and they're these flat, plate-like, Victorian clockwork-styled airships and they remind me of the of the airship technology for final fantasy 12 did you get a vibe of, of that at all yeah um the there's no aerodynamicness to them or the ability that they they should be flying or they're propelled in a way that makes any sense so there's probably some sort of like anti-gravity technology going on there you know or just something where uh, the whatever's going on inside the machine is capable of generating enough, um, you know, anti-gravity or whatever to keep it in the air because it's able to just kind of hover there as it's passing by. Um, and you know, the the feeling I had, it's a completely different um, reference because there's no direct connection, but it just reminded me of Final Fantasy X. You're, you're in your peaceful little town, you're playing Blitzball or whatever, and then you're getting raided by this enemy force. And uh, that there's the scene where like the there's the giant sin pod that comes in and then it flickers and shakes and then all the tiny little ones are, you know, flying off of the big pod. And so it just quick it gave me that feeling of like you know the the big thing comes in you're like okay i gotta deal with that and then you get a close-up and you're like oh no i gotta deal with the you know 200 things that are attached to it that's the bigger threat honestly 
Right, and you see this play out in lots of RPGs or, or other media, movies and and stories and legends. We're called Hero with a Thousand Potions. That's the name is a, is a riff on Hero with a Thousand Faces, the Joseph Campbell text uh, that that kind of discusses the mono the mono myth, the hero's journey, the 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 framework upon all like all good stories kind of hang on and it's recognizable all around the world and this would be one of those steps i'm not going to go through all of the like all of the steps right now it's very interpretive and subjective and who's to say that the formula is something we have to you know uh, constrain ourselves to but there but one of the steps is the call to adventure of course it begins with the ordinary world the the idyllic peaceful town the rolling green grass this is a rather sci-fi intrigued uh, rolling green grass it's not exactly what you might see in 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 other conventional uh, role-playing games but then we get the call to adventure it, it in in xenoblade chronicles it's this attack in final fantasy 6 it's it's um it's it's terra connecting with the esper Perhaps in, in the Matrix, it could be, you know, Neo connecting with Morpheus. And in Star Wars, it's it's uh, Luke getting to know, or meeting Obi-Wan Kenobi, or maybe it's getting to know the droids. I would argue that Final Fantasy VII's call to adventure is the assassination of President Shinra at the Shinra building well into the game. Because you're kind of on your own predetermined little save-the-world quest, but it's really that event that shakes up the the formula on you thought you were saving the world, but here's the actual real threat that we're learning about now. Right. To, to hell with the eight reactors, eight dungeons um, mm-hmm. format, huh? Yeah, and that, that goes back into something we were talking about earlier on a uh, previous episode. So um, that game's pretty... Um, it's engrossing in how... They give you um, so much of the world. They set up so much of like what the stakes are and what you're fighting for before they really put you on the main quest. And that's what we see here is maybe a little bit more uh, reserved version of that, but you do spend a lot of time in this town before the attack to set up those stakes of like, what am I losing here in this attack? What am I invested in? You know, mm-hmm. what is going to happen to all of the people that I've built up affinity with that are now getting eaten alive by robots? Oh my God. That is what's happening. The, when, when we get shots of what's going on in town here, these, these interstitial cutscenes of the carnage happening on the ground, there are, th- there's a variety of mechons. We talked a lot about the large one, but there are more, and, and the other ones are large too. They're maybe 10 or 12 feet tall, but there's these walkers with these demi-gorgon spindly mouths on the ends of their, of their arms that open, uh, and they're seizing Hams with them and consuming them in these their large tubular claw-like appendages and and it isn't very obvious that they're getting eaten until shulk recognizes himself and 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 shouts it out loud (laughs) they're eating them yeah i was gonna say the exact same thing i have the same note of like i don't know if this is just a you know this is how they kill people the artist drew up the arm thing and it's like well they're gonna you know they're like a crab they're gonna crunch him or whatever but (laughs) the game makes a point to say to you that people are being consumed and you know 
as we're going to do on this uh, uh, journey here, I, I'm going to reference Xenogears because there is a significant segment of the game about you're eating people um, and how that relates to Deus the machine consuming organic matter to uh, rebuild itself. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of the Xeno games, there is this dualism of of organic and and mechanic. Uh, but mm-hmm. so far in Xenoblade, I don't see Hams eating mechons. No, um, there is like a there is a weird symbiotic relationship though, because Hams, you know, are they're using lots of machinery. Um, and we've talked about that a little bit, but you know the um, the soldiers are trying to repair a, a giant mechanical armor. You know, mm-hmm. so in in that case, you know, it's really not. Yeah, the human is controlling the armor, but that's a mech versus mech fight if they're going to use it to defend against Mechon. Um, and then uh, something I don't know if we touched on in our last uh, segment, but the. Uh, upon review the ether cylinder station that we went to at the beginning um they say specifically this place is in good condition considering it's ancient so humans have this connection or hobs sorry not humans uh have this connection to uh, like an ancient mechanical facility so maybe it's in their history that there was a piece or a collaboration of some kind and that this current status quo of bitter enemies wanting to murder each other wasn't always the case right we don't know very much about the nature of ether either and maybe that could be their their life force or spiritual resource there's there's 15 chapters to get through yet there's there's a lot of lore we don't know um Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. anyways the surface to air missile cannons fire a blast at one of the carriers but the blast disintegrates in a plane across the surface of the carrier suggesting that it has this sort of shield on it they're not vulnerable to the hamza's mm-hmm. surface to air laser strikes and i think that is the the previous like uh jet uh mechon that we've been referenced to kind of swooped in and took that bullet it's not i don't know if there's multiple of him up there but i think they've been making making a point to highlight a specific one so did he dive in front of that blast i think so Hmm. and we're gonna we're gonna get into references of how he is able to kind of negate uh energy blasts of some kind or you know the the monado all that but Mm -hmm. that's later Mm -hmm. so we're getting a sense that this that this giant mechon means some pretty serious business in the meanwhile as the carnage is playing on playing out we cut to dunbin's house and dunbin hears the commotion and rouses from his sleep sexy shirtless (laughs) and, and nursing his arm starts walking towards the door yeah, and he's he's nursing his arm and he's limping, so I get this feeling of like, what the hell is this guy going to do, you know? <laughs> we cross the bridge from the field to the main entrance and we get a cutscene. And Fiora wonders where Dunbin is and she's going to go race over to him. 
or maybe it's after no hold on are we attacked by mechons first this battle took me forever yeah you got to do some shenanigans with like knocking them down with the special ability effects between the three people precisely so that combo that we discussed in the previous episodes that is required to do when you're fighting mechons here so these mechons will take one or two points of damage normally mm -hmm. basically they're invulnerable to conventional weapons unless you execute the the combo that we are that nate and i are slowly figuring out <laughs> mm -hmm. and and were and was required uh behavioral steerage at this point in time and and it took a long time because I think in the I think in the previous episode I told you that Ryan opens up the combo, but I don't think that's true. It I think and you, which would make you originally correct. Shulk opens it up, but he has two abilities to do it. Yeah, and and I thought he only had one, and so my original frustration with this fight was, firstly, it was figuring out that Shulk starts the combo, and then I figured out that while I was waiting for ryan to realize it was his turn i could have been using the other combo opener to increase the window of time in which ryan can respond by 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 double and yeah. once and once i arrived at that understanding then it was getting a little smoother mm -hmm. i think the game does a pretty good job of telling you how to play it there's tons of tutorials i don't blame them at all but I think there's just a old school 2000s, like there's some rough edges that they're just kind of like, eh, you know, you're not going to get game over. You'll be fine. You know, <laughs> where they just kind of, they let you uh, grind your teeth a little bit on it to get a feel for it. Um, this fight, and kind of we'll, we'll get a couple more instances of this, but I don't know if the, ter the term ludonarrative dissonance applies here. But um, it kind of muddies the water for me on what the story is telling me. Mechon and the Monado, like their relationship of like, hey, nobody can damage the Mechon unless they're using the Monado. That thing cuts Mechon, right? They're invulnerable otherwise. But if that were the case, then people wouldn't be running around with guns and cannons and rocket launchers and things like that so i don't think that's true i think i'm misunderstanding something when they say that you need the monado to kick Macon's ass you know <laughs> because apparently like uh, uh three teenagers can through the force of cooperation beat the shit, shit out of a mechon so we have that initial fight there kind of at the gates of town um the next thing is the obvious conclusion the the monado is the thing that uh slices through mecca and just destroys them that's how dunban beat him a year ago um nobody knows where dunban is if he can even wield the thing now but the monado is in the lab so um ryan and shulk make the decision get to the lab that's the easy answer this is the way we're going to get through this right um earlier uh in a prior session of ours i had talked about i felt like ryan was in this place to kind of pick up for dunban but i feel like now um as i'm kind of reviewing and digesting some of my information 
that might be me kind of projecting a mixture of Shulk and Ryan. I feel like Ryan has a general sense of duty to everyone, and that Shulk is the one that's kind of obsessed with the figuring out the Monado and discovering its secrets because he, he understands what's at stake here. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I see that they, they both would have a reason to, you know, include that that's the best chance for this town is to get that tool instead of, you know, oh, we, we got to evacuate people. We got to put out the fires. We got to, you know, just go beat up a bunch of mecha by hand. Um, to them, it's pretty clear what they need to do. Mm -hmm. So they make their way to the military square, uh, which is where Shulk's lab and the Monado is currently located. Fiora catches back up with the team um, before they advance into the center areas of the city. And she says that Dunbin's gone. Anyways, uh, we get another cutscene where Waluigi is uh, commanding his, the Colony 9 militia forces to attack and the large Mechon uh, engages in a fight with Waluigi or Colonel Waluigi. Colonel Waluigi has a, a grenade launcher in his hands and fires one at at the large Mechon at point blank range. This is an explosive <laughs> rocket. And Waluigi goes flying and he gets up from his from the dust cloud that he landed in and he says wow i can't believe you resisted that round and i'm watching what happened and i'm going waluigi i can't believe you resisted that round yeah at one point he mentions uh mechon with a face uh and like laughs about it or thinks it's ridiculous as if he's never seen that before so yeah, yeah. we're oh. in that we're in that territory again of like this is a new generation um you know when the jet was flying by earlier they said never seen anything like it they've never seen a face on them before um i'm i'm leaning towards the belief that after the defeat a year ago they've adapted they've come up with uh a new battle plan than just we're gonna send these you know uh, thousands of these little droids or you know whatever kind of automaton equivalent mechon they've got a little bit more intelligence to them now maybe mm -hmm. the, the way colonel waluigi says that says a mechon with a face i remember there being some sort of um, contempt about it he's it's like a mechon with a face like he uh maybe he's underestimating or doesn't completely appreciate what that means and i certainly don't either i mean i mm -hmm. the the details of a mechon were not completely clear to me uh, until this chapter even in the introductory scene we do see mechons and they are kind of bug like mechanical like spindly metal arms and grapply hands and there could have been a face but I think what is what we're establishing here is that this large one has a face. It's this, it's it's plate like, and it's skull like, and it has these cracks in it, and that that uh, highlight the contours of the skull like face. And inside these these 
metal cracks are are glowing red uh let's say waves of energy mm -hmm. and we cut to this face several times over the course of the chapter with the the developers are really underscoring the face what the face looks like it's not especially expressive it's kind of frozen in one spot i don't remember it ever talking uh in this chapter but there is a there's tremendous importance on the principle of a mechon with a face we could have kind of questioned like are mechon just kind of a a force of nature you know with these little bug bodies kind of uh like do they just show up and assimilate material or uh gather resources but they don't have a mind or a personality to any of them they're just they're there you know um they have a function and they perform that one function now we're leaning a little bit into again kind of when i was talking about their art direction earlier we're leading into the idea that there's intelligence there's personality there's um a mind behind this uh enemy force when uh one of them would craft or, or either somebody above them or he crafted him for himself a visage a visage is that a right word shulk and party are not present for this scene but waluigi uh, he's not done fighting with the faced mechon the mechon uses its claws these long sharp knives and they're 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 long and spindly and they look razor sharp and he uses these this razor claw and he and he grabs a tank they have these the the military plaza has these hover tanks and they look like conventional even like world war ii style tanks except they don't have treads they they look like they might just hover mm -hmm. this one the one it seizes is not uh, in operation, although tiny mechons uh, escape out of the hatch <laughs> when he grabs it, which is a neat little detail, raises it up into the air and smashes it down on Colonel Waluigi. Yeah, I have. Uh, he gets a boat dropped on him. It's <laughs> what I wrote. Explosion. Um, yeah, and this complicates the entire quest because this is now lodged in the doorway to the lab after it gets thrown at the troops and uh the colonel and all that uh so now access to the lab to get the monado is completely cut off um so our heroes are kind of in a bind right so our so fiora ryan and shulk are in the are on a bridge over the lake between the inaccessible military plaza and where they just were the commercial district which is under complete chaos and they are getting pincered by a squad of these smaller more diminutive mechs which are as we established a total bitch to kill well uh quick uh thing that they decide is that in order to get the monado they are going to need to get the um mech suit the previous one that we'd gotten the ether cylinders in the first place to repair it get it out of that dude's house um they think oh we'll use that that can break through the rubble get to the lab get to the monado um 
So we set off in order to get the cylinders. And um, Fiora, we cut a path so that Fiora can escape. Um, that all happens off screen at that point. So her getting the mech, getting to the lab, clearing the rubble. I'm to understand that that all happened off screen while we had a big fight in the the middle, the the bitch to kill, like you said, um, and and that whole scene of them um, letting her or, or, or cutting the way through for her. That's when Ryan mentions uh, that you know after everything the people of the town have gave a year ago, all the lives lost, that he feels a sense of duty to repay that um, and to do his part to protect the city. So um, that's kind of, I feel like, an important moment for Ryan's character to see his dedication level, um, that he'll stand and fight no matter what. Mm -hmm. um, he does have a strong sense of duty. Yeah, there's also a, one, one thing that... I don't know. I, I'm not going to gripe about too much, but all of the action conveniently stops for a significant amount of feelings and exposition in that moment. So we've got robots just kind of like shuffling around, not sure what to do, and heroes standing back to back with their swords, talking about things <laughs> and uh, getting emotional. And it's it's a little bit much for me. I feel like you could there's a, a way you could stack those events differently to not have the, you know, significant dialogue happening in the middle of a fight or just choreograph the fight happening and them saying those things while going through various motions of attack and defense. Right. For a, for a, an invading force that is eating Homs uh, with abandon or without abandon, or whatever the expression is, they are giving our heroes uh, quite a bit of time to have their moment. Yeah. So who who leaps out and cuts down most of these uh, these mechons is Dunbin. And what do you know? He's got the Monado, the red sword. Yeah. It's... And that's what I mean. That's it. I don't know if he got that off screen from Fiora. Like she went and got the mech, cleared the rubble, and he was able to get in then. Or is there something else happening where he was able to just get in, break through the rubble himself via some, you know, untold means? Uh, I'm not entirely sure. If those events were clear to you, let me know. But it was pretty vague to me. It was vague to me. My interpretation of the sequence events was Dunbin went to the laboratory and and equipped the Monado during or just before the cutscene with Waluigi. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. It was it was never there in the first place then. Uh, even though we we were going there to get it, we didn't know that it had already been removed. I think it had been already removed for at least half of the time we spent advancing towards it. Dunbin is crackling with purple energy. He's mm -hmm. he looks like he's electrified, but he's not feeling any pain. He's just he's just surging. The the Monado is also surging. The the kanji in its in its in the body of the weapon is glowing and the and there's the large beam that that comes out of the monado it's glowing he is a force to be reckoned with and he has joined the party
and he says, uh, sorry I kept you waiting. Um, that is kind of a, a staple cool guy, old veteran line in, in <laughs> video games and anime. I almost wonder if there's a specific, um, like a Japanese phrase that's more specifically used for that scenario um, that's kind of like the cool man one-liner. Whereas we we literally translate it as to something a little bit more tame and just mundane. Maybe it's more of like a catchphrase or a tagline in Japanese. I don't know. I'd have to get a, a feedback on what was said in the original and uh, if that is the case. But you do see it a lot. It's uh, him and Solid Snake and uh, some of those kind of old... Uh, veterans that swoop in to save the day you always kind of hear that line when dunbin hits the first mechon with the monado he hits for 830 damage this is a normal auto attack my boys hit for one or two (laughs) no uh crowd control necessary either it is nice to hit for more than one or two so uh, you have you're a little better equipped than my team is were you hitting for one or two or were you doing a little bit better yep i think it's just a an inherent mechanic of the game so uh, yes i did fully equip basically every upgrade i could get i checked every people for trading gear my bags are full of garbage that i don't know what to do with and (laughs) sell half the time so i have a lot of options for upgrading and maximizing my characters and really you are forced to do the um the mechanics of the crowd control knockdowns etc in order to get anywhere with the game up until the point where dunban joins the party dunban shulk and ryan advance towards where do they go they well fiora is still in that mech on the other side of town mm-hmm. where you crash into the building so again that's where my confusion stemmed from um and the bridge is now covered in tons of debris um so we can't get to fiora to save her um so we're now going to trek back out to the field through the town's main entrance and circle back because the the town has multiple access points but um we are cut off from the primary route she had taken when she left to get that uh mech machine so um yeah we are we're now trekking back kind of backtracking through uh the main part of town and past dunman's house and the main entrance Right. So we get to the bridge between the Dunbin the Dunbin's house area and mm-hmm. the field outside of town. And there is a squad of normal mechons blocking the way. Dunbin charges, but he gets racked with pain and he collapses on the ground and the Monado clatters to the floor in front of him. Yeah, and uh, that's where Shulk sees the opportunity to... Um, I feel like this has been a, a long-standing desire of his uh, to wield this weapon. He's been researching it. He's been studying it. He saw visions when he held it earlier. I feel like he feels a connection to it or a calling to it. So um, in the wake of what they have to lose of everything going on. I think this is kind of Shulk's do or die moment of, you know, Denben can't wield it. He's going to die if he 
goes any harder than he's been going. He vomits um, blood. Yeah, yeah. So it's clear that something needs to happen. And I, I don't know. I, I might have to rewatch the scene, but I feel like Shulk just had no hesitation. He he instinctively knew that he had to be the one to step up, and for various reasons. There's there's a few different things that like are a little bit more big picture here that you know we we've just met these characters we've spent a handful of hours with them it's like i feel like the more i get to know shulk there's going to be a bigger picture of why he's so motivated to uh figure this thing out i don't know if there's something in his history or um some sort of premonition he has because Mm -hmm. we will see there's more premonitions to come so maybe you know he said in that, that original scene where he picked up the Monado in the lab and we saw some premonitions, I do remember him saying that wasn't the first time it's happened. So maybe there's an even more important uh, driving premonition he's had in the past that he feels like this is his destiny to some capacity. Mm-hmm. So Shulk picks up the Monado and everything goes sepia tone we're kind of like uh yeah he um he watches him he watches his own ass get kicked by mechon and he's wondering what the hell's going on right and then uh he well more specifically a bullet gets fired and hits him right things are moving really slowly things are yeah time is kind of out of balance it kind of feels like that nether world that frodo goes in when he puts the ring on it, there's this physical anomaly that Shulk is experiencing, an anomaly of reality that Shulk is experiencing in this moment, a hallucination, a vision, a premonition of the future, the very, very short-term future. Yeah, and he's the only one that's seeing it. So in this case, you know, a, a Mechon fires at him, he gets hit. He sees that, and in real life, he dodges the, the bullet. Then he gets close to one, he gets knocked around a bit in the vision, and then in real life he knows exactly where to dodge and what to do. Now, Ryan and Dunbin, they're not seeing the sepia world going on in Shulk's head, so all they see is him just losing his shit, doing backflips, like dodging things at a moment's notice, you know. Um, He looks like, you know, Neo, uh, just perfectly where he needs to be at the exact moment. He slays all of the Mechons in his way. We don't have a proper fight. This was the cutscene. They're all dead. Mm-hmm. And then Dunbin and Ryan and Shulk have a short conversation in which Shulk says, I, 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 he explains it. I had a premonition of the future. I could see the, the Mechons' behavior before it happens. Dunbin, is, uh, is, that, has, is that something you've experienced? And he does not confirm or deny it but he does say dixon he, he he doesn't speak to his experience he quotes another person who we've never seen use the monado which i find very interesting he says dixon says that there are other skills or features of the monado that have not yet been unlocked or something to that effect yeah i wrote in my notes that he's uh he's playing coy about hidden power and um we don't have any bearing to know what Dixon's experience with the Monado was. Was it was he a user of it before Dunbin? I know that in the initial cutscene from a year earlier, uh, Dixon was kind of 
talking to Dunman about like you can't take much more, you can't do this, you can't do that, you know. Um maybe Dixon does have experience using it and it was kind of passed on from there. We haven't gotten that information just yet. Um but I do feel like Dunman is hiding something when asked about it. It's the the way in which he answers, they give him a little bit of um vagueness in his response that there there's a door left open there shulk and party ascend up the alternative way to get into the town we're outside of town we're, we're ascending this path this grassy path um killing mechons along the way and we're introduced to some battle gameplay including the monado the monado itself has some skills these skills are different than shulk's conventional weapon skills right now there are two of them one of them is you can grant an aoe buff to all of your team to to deal more than one or two points of damage to a mechon at a time for a limited amount of time and the other skill is a is a burst of damage to well you know to 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 mechons and it almost looks like that buff it's just it's giving you the energy to do normal damage to Mechon, because, like, your partners aren't hitting them for 800, 1500. They aren't, like, tweaked out like you are. They're hitting for the same amount that they would be hitting monsters for. So it's almost like it's not necessarily like, oh, you know, we're imp- you've got this crazy power running through you. You're, you're a god now. It's like we've flipped a switch of where um, that whatever blocks that are innate or in the mechon's defenses against humans are just gone you know i don't know what that means if that if i'm perceiving that correctly or if it really just comes down to a gameplay element because they say you know hey the the monado is the only thing that can cut through mechon you know or destroy them um but you it's also capable of making people with regular weapons have normal effects on them we engage in a fight with the large faced mechon it's a boss battle we're holding the monado boss battle music is playing and it has a name it's uh name is metal face oh my god metal face that's uh it's one of those things where i feel like they knew uh, what they were doing with that. Uh, it, so, to you don't have experience with the Metal Gear s- series, but no. um, when it when it when it got started, there were enemy names uh, like there would be a boss, and his name was Shotmaker, right? And when the game got localized, they just all right, yeah, let's call him Shotmaker, right? The thing you don't realize is that to a largely Japanese-speaking audience, that sounds cool because it doesn't. You don't know what those words mean. It's like I could jam together two random Japanese words and it'll sound cool, but to them it might sound stupid as hell. So that was something that early on in the Metal Gear series, you know, uh, they did that, but the creator kind of leaned into it as the series went on. You know, his he he speaks kind of half good english and uh uh he he had a character named big boss right and it was because he was literally the last boss of the game again 
Japanese people aren't the, a large amount of them aren't not going to know what that means, and so you know, not an issue. But when it gets localized here, it sounds dumb. But when you have your first major character of the game named Big Boss, then we kind of have to make all of your code names going forward uh, very simple and very um, like on the nose of who they are and what they do. So I feel like there was almost a degree of where that became like an in-industry uh, quirk, so to speak, of just, hey, let's just give him an English name that is literally what he is, on the nose, no problem, because for local audiences, it'll still sound cool, and for foreign audiences, it'll be a little, you know, in-joke or something. I could be wrong. He could have a totally different name in uh, Japanese, and the localizers just decided he's going to be Metal Face. But um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. We'll see. I think it sounds a little silly and uninspired. Maybe it is. Maybe it is really cool. Maybe there's some things about Mekon culture and naming that I don't know about yet. Um, but at first glance, I think... I think we could have done better team. I think we could have done a better team. <laughs> Anyways, uh, we... Uh, so he's... That's not to say the model isn't cool. That's not to say he isn't menacing. That's not to say he doesn't do neat stuff. Um, anyways, so we engage in this boss fight. And it turns out that conventional auto attacks with the Monado also deal one or two points of damage per hit. And so what we have to do is synthesize the battle strategies that we've learned over the course of the game so far so it's not just that we have the monado now we need to use monado skills and use the comboing that we've learned with our conventional weapons to produce the necessary vulnerability and then when he's vulnerable we can all we can all smash him yeah and shulk even points out he says there's like a strange glowing blue light on this uh, new mecha that he wonders if that's why he's invulnerable to damage from the Monado. So again, a year ago, the mecha all got their asses kicks, kissed, that's the wrong word, uh, asses kicked by uh, this tool that has a very specific power. So are we looking at a new generation of mecha that have adapted and said, hey, you only know how to do this one thing with the sword. If we can just adapt and create a defense against that, you're screwed. Um, so it, it leans into that a little bit. It leans into the comment made by Dunman that the Monado has a lot of undiscovered powers to it that we may need to harness down the road to not be in this predicament long term. That glow you spoke of, was that the glow on his claws or was it the thorax like the the if it was an ant like the butt section of an ant or an ant like insect that was that was the glowing part it wasn't very obvious to me in the moment that's a great question same here there's some blue glows there's some like uh his body has kind of like a little bit of a tron neon line glow inside of it you know mm -hmm. um and then there's also at one point i think it's intended to be blood but the effect they use is more like an ethereal energy type thing so there's like a red graphic moving across his uh, claw section as well i I, I'm not going to attribute that to it, but I'm saying they didn't do a great job of making clear 
what visual effect Shulk was referencing. If we've played any video games in the early and mid-90s, then we should know it's the big glowing butt thing. Okay. Um, I, I, I feel like I feel like we this could be a chance of overthinking it, and I'm falling back into my older faculties and saying, I've played enough original Star Fox, I've played enough Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Turtles in Time, you gotta hit the thing that's glowing. Not yeah. that it was targetable. Um, we had to. We had to kill. Uh, I, it, there, there was a single thing to target. The, the, there was one hitbox. There wasn't the head and the butt and the knee and things like that. Anyways, uh, painstakingly, I I tore this guy down. H how did you How did you manage this this boss fight? Um, yeah, I think my gear and my level meant that there weren't any particular threats. I probably tossed a heal out there. Shulk is talented, I guess would be the right, right word, into being a little bit better of a healer. So um, I think I just kind of went by the book through the motions, did my combos. They were a lot more responsive this time, I feel like, uh, with the combo train. The game puts little hints, uh, the exclamation marks, on which ones you're supposed to hit when. So it's not terribly difficult. I just felt the first time where I was struggling with this, when we were talking about it in the dungeon, uh, they the NPCs just weren't responding. And this time it was pretty responsive and good. So... Uh, the boss battle was not a problem for me. We defeat Metal Face in combat, and then in the cutscene, he blasts us, and we go flying. We're we're prone on the ground. It's just one of those things where um, I don't know. They like to they like to linger on the shots of people's faces, the desperation, the the feeling of like, oh no, what are we gonna do? You know, and it's like I just won the fight. Why am I on my back foot now? You know. It's, it's just one of those things of RPGs where it's like, we want to give you content, we want to let you win the fight, but at the same time, you're, you're getting your ass kicked story-wise. It's a very cinematic RPG. Um, and what interrupts the uh, Metal Faces Killing Blow is Fiora in her mech. This mech is fully operational now. It looks pretty interesting. It's, it stands on a, on a tripod of legs, but the legs themselves have tank treads that, that move very, very fast. And so it's bulky, but it's extremely agile. And and, it, and it's fairly large too. It's not 50 feet tall. It's maybe, let's say 25 or 30. It's got a Gatling gun on one arm. It has a large, a, a, a cannon coming off the center top. And the and the cannon barrel is fairly narrow. It kind of looks out of place. It almost looks like an antenna, more than a more than a gun barrel there. And there's another weapon on the other arm, perhaps a missile launcher. So yeah, she's got the uh, the artillery cannon of the uh, gun tank, so to speak. Uh, that's a. I feel her mech is a reference to a Gundam uh, model, where it is modeled after the gun tank. Uh, it's a it's a mech that has tank treads and a uh, two artillery cannons on the shoulders and uh, machine guns for hands uh, or galling guns for hands I should say. Um, so she's, she's riding this thing. She's got the uh, barrel of the artillery cannon directly in uh, Metal Face's uh, base and fires it. Um, and it does do damage. 
This is another point blank explosion to a soft bodied Homs, a fired by a soft body Homs because uh, Fiora is not in a cockpit. She's she, she's exposed to the environment around her. She's the, the way she's kind of strapped into this thing. She looks like uh, Ripley, like you know, wearing that power work loader from the original Aliens. Um, that that, yeah. that yellow mech suit. It's kind of it's kind of a, a riff on that in some ways, although it is more menacing and military grade in Xenoblade here. And uh, it kind of reminds me of the, uh, the the moment in the Matrix where uh, Neo's fighting an agent, and then all of a sudden Trinity's there with the gun directly to his head and says, "Dodge this," you know. Um, very cool moment, very iconic. But uh, in this case, it, with the mobility of the jet mech and the kind of rigidness of the. Uh, artillery mech and everything this was probably her safest bet to actually land a hit would be point blank and uh it does do damage it's uh the the skull or mask of uh metal face uh is blown apart on the uh, his left side i believe uh, he looks mangled yeah it does it yeah. does deal damage to it which is pretty neat considering that we that we've underscored how different or more advanced or more dangerous a masked mechon is yeah and that's where there is a sliding scale of damage that uh we've kind of learned that mechon can take they're just they're not completely invulnerable to all damage they're just highly highly durable so in certain circumstances, you will be able to damage their body without the use of the Monado, per se. Shulk gets another premonition. We go into sepia tone world again, and he sees a an energy blast coming from Metal Face to the mech and shearing off one of the arms of the mech, and the mech being blown backwards and we cut back into real life and shulk has this horrible feeling that something terrible is going to happen what happens next metal face fires an energy beam at fiora in her mech and shears off one of the arms fires a second one shears off the other the, the other weapon and then with fiora in her in her mech prone on the ground Metal Face advances toward her, picks her up with one arm, draws back that long, knivey, clawed arm, and we kind of cut away when the claw comes down. Mm -hmm. Shulk screams. And when we cut back to Metal Face, the claw comes back and all four or five of those spindly knife fingers are red. They've Weird. got like a bleeding effect on them, like the the blood is running down, uh, moving across the claws, uh, fresh. There's a like a graphic they're using to make that drip. And we're getting a sense that a a killing blow has been laid on one of our playable characters. Indeed, right. It does seem that way. We we don't we don't really know that, uh, but. Over the course of all of this happening, our our team is on the ground prone. They may be like crackling with like purple energy, like 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 paralyzing <laughs> electricity. Um, but Shulk gets up and he pulls a shadow of the Colossus. 
he's enraged and he's he's got the Monado. The Monado is firing on all all cylinders, not that, not that it has any cylinders. And he climbs up the arm of Metal Face across the plane of its shoulder and stabs the uh, Metal Face in the face, completely impales Metal Face's Metal Face with the Monado's energy beam. There, it's... It's weird because like there's such a focus on this character having a face, and then his name is Face, and he's shot in the face or whatever. <laughs> there's something going on here that I don't know if it's maybe too on the nose or uh, what the creators were trying to get across here. But it, like the name of this chapter should just be Face <laughs> or Metal Face, you know. Face. Metal Face shrugs Shulk off looks up at the sky at a carrier like as if he's being summoned or fuck I gotta go or I've done my duty here I have no idea what's going this thing doesn't talk whatsoever I have no idea what's going on in his, in his mind and he fires his jets kind of goes into like a jet transformer mode and flies off in the direction of one of the carriers ahead and disappears and so too do the invading force and it's unclear what their objective was here if i was you know coming into this analyzer of previous anime works per se i would say that oh the mechon showed up because they detected there was some uh unwitting researcher tampering with the monado and it gave off some signal and that uh set them all you know afoot to uh, respond to that signal that was put out there. That that would be my bet of why they were here. You know, oh, we know where the Monado is now. We're going to retrieve it. But this retreat at the end doesn't really look to be the case because I didn't get the feeling that Metal Face was particularly, like, felt like he was going to die or he was threatened. Mm -hmm. And if I'm taking account of everything that happened... It sounds kind of weird, but I feel like the either a it's something as simple as just destroy the town and kill all the humans, eat a bunch of them, and then we're peace out, we're gone, or that Fiora's death has some significance to them accomplishing their mission and saying, "All right, time to go." I was thinking the same thing. There could be more to Fiora than meets the eye. Of course, she is the sister of the original child of destiny dunbin although we know he we because he's not shulk we can think that he's not the essential one uh yeah and or and another theory which is a little pedestrian here was the invading force uh has developed a fear of the monado finally finally we're able to leverage enough of the monado's power to say hey maybe maybe you guys should go yeah, maybe all their poking and prodding had a inverse effect of what they wanted to do because they're like, oh, shit, you know, this is actually helping them figure out some of this Monado stuff, and we don't want that. Oh, Stop. that's interesting. Like, they're gathering data on on stress testing the Monado, limit testing the Monado. Yeah, but also, like, hey, you know, we, we know that the humans, they've got this guy Dunbin, he wields the Monado, he's all right at it, but we have the countermeasures now, we're ready to go. 
And, uh, yeah, that's all fine and dandy, but Dunbin isn't the one wielding a Monado. They've got this new guy, and this new guy is doing some crazy shit, so, like, we might need to get out of here and reassess our plan, because this guy's doing different things than Dunbin did, as far as we know. I, I don't know. This I'm going off of what information we have. Uh, in spite of her bravery, it seems as though Fiora did die. Because the following scenes were treated to some reflection about Fiora and her relationships with our characters. The first one is is a flashback of Fiora and Shulk sitting at at the bench at Makeout Point. They're not making out. No, we haven't seen anybody make out at Makeout Point. We were just calling it Makeout Point. It's a nice little park at the top of the hill that looks down on Colony Nine. <laughs> it's, I mean, it would be a great place to make out, but we haven't yeah. seen it yet. Yeah, and I'm I'm recalling the previous scene um, that they're kind of referencing here, and I think we didn't talk about it previously, but there's an interesting aspect of Shulk's character that they highlighted was that uh, Fiora says no matter what kind of lunch she brought him or food she made him, he'd always just say it was great. And uh, the funny thing is, is I get accused of the same thing by my wife. She's like, you know, I can never get good feedback on whether my cooking is good or bad because you just always like everything. And it's like, she feels that I'm being dishonest. And I'm like, no, I actually am not picky at all. And the fact that I have food to eat is wonderful. So I feel a connection to Shulk's personality in that moment. And hearkening back to that scene kind of reminded me of it again. Uh, there, They kind of have a sweet, close connection. So I can, I can feel where he's going with these memories. And then when we cut back to real life again, Shulk is still sitting on that bunch, but he's sitting alone. And you can feel that hole in, in his heart as he's as he's maybe picturing or wanting Fiora sitting there next to him. Follow-up scene, uh, we're in Dunbin's house. I believe Ryan's there too, Shulk as well. And we're musing about the Monado and Fiora's sacrifice. No, she was very brave. She was kind of a kind of a sweet, I don't know if Ditsy's the right word, but, uh, but a enthusiastic young woman and in this moment she's like a she's a she's a hero she's um the 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 quote that we get from dunban is treasure the gift of life she gave you the circumstances in which she died were precipitated by her drawing metal faces attention away from our party lying on the ground vulnerable and that's why Dudman says that he uh, he's not going to cry over her death. Like, he, he's mourning and he feels a sense of loss. But uh, for him, his allies from a year ago that all passed in the war and now her passing, he feels that crying over them would dishonor the fact that they accomplished their goal their goal was to protect their loved ones right Mm -hmm. and they were successful in that so he finds a different way to honor them than crying over them i don't know that i particularly agree with crying always being seen as a inherently negative or like a mournful thing you know i i think it's good to cry but uh i i see where he's going with it a neat detail that i picked up in this conversation with dunbin was that he named the battle that took place a year ago they call it the battle of sword valley Mm. now i missed you missed that oh dude oh but there's 
there's more we can say about it. So we know the, what the positions of the two Titans were in when they were fighting. And in this battle, it, they were kind of in a narrow slot of land and all of the Mechons were engaging from one side and all of the Homs were engaging from the other. So you might ask yourself, is the Battle of Sword Valley taking place on the weapons that are that are kind of like land bridges between these mm. two Titan continent world things? The very thing that connects them is violence. Mm. It defines their existence. Next scene, we're getting a sense that a revenge plot is sort of building here. It's just Shulk and Ryan right now. We're outside of town, and we're we're getting a sense that we're going to say farewell to Colony Nine for a little while because, well, Shulk says my purpose. He, he's 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 kind of solidified his in, in his mind what he's going to do here. My purpose in life is to pursue that faced Mechon. He wants to destroy it. He wants to bring honor back to, uh, to to Colony Nine. He wants to avenge Fiora's death, and he's go he's he's going to take the Monado. And he's going to go out into the world. And pursue the the faced mech and destroy it, which I find to be a particularly ambitious goal, um, considering the fact that Metal Face can just jump up in the air and fly <laughs> a million miles away, and it's like you've got shoes that are gonna get worn out here. You've got uh, you got to stop and find a meal. You got to take a pee. You know, like. Uh, this is a pretty big deal, Shulk. So, uh, you know, um, I believe it. I believe his conviction, his drive. Um, there's some interesting quotes we can get into in this uh, chat they're having. But the first thing I think of in this... Is, well, actually, there's two things I think of in this scene is... Uh, this is a really tall order, Shulk. The, you're just going to go out there in the world and hunt down potentially the most powerful threat that your people have ever faced Hell by yeah. yourself. And then the second thing I was thinking is, dear God, someone please turn down the music. I cannot even hear them talk. <laughs> I don't know if you felt that way, but the orchestration was beautiful and overpowering as well. I don't remember the volume affecting me, but I do remember listening to the music at the time and it was it was tender, it was it was uh, it was symphonic, it was kind of heartbreaking. It, it had this um this, this emotional strain in it. I kind of felt the way you might feel at the end of Empire Strikes Back where where we didn't get everything we wanted. And even in these in these scenes, um, I remember there was sort of this orange or rust colored like a uh, uh, overlay on the town there's this uh this distressed tone that everything has taken now these fields aren't really green anymore it's a little more autumnal i, I don't know what this what, what the stylish change uh, is really supposed to mean but the effect that i had was that home feels a little different now you know, we've, we've, we've said farewell to some loved ones. Uh, you know, uh, Fiora, of course, Waluigi, uh, I believe, has, has uh, passed as well. And the musical swell was quite tender and, and bittersweet. Yeah, a, a moment that stuck out to me as we, uh, as they're chatting, um, uh, Ryan and Shulk talking together. Uh, Shulk says, in my head, there are two versions of me. And to simplify them, there's listen to what Dunbin said about 
you know, uh, taking the gift given, living your life, you know, uh, being at peace with everything that happened. Or there's the second option, which is make them pay. So um, the interesting thing is, we this isn't the first time. It may just be a, a one-off statement, but it isn't the first time we've had a main character of a Xeno game that has two versions or more of themselves. So I don't know if that's an allusion to anything or if it's just the, uh, you, you know, if there's Shulk the Peacemaker and Shulk the... Uh, violent uh, revenge uh, person if those are very distinct things or if this was just kind of a one-off statement for the sake of the conversation we'll have to see we'll have to see uh, the the chapter ends with Ryan agreeing to join Shulk on this adventure um, Ryan has a has a comment like, how did it go? So Shulk says something to something to the effect of, um, "I'm I'm ready to go out into the world. I'm ready to do what's right for Colony Nine, and and you know uh, work work passionately for my loved ones." And Ryan's like, "Hey, I'm I'm I've always felt that way um, through my, my 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 militia upkeep and 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 pursued and 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 I'm I'm thrilled you've kind of arrived at that level, although although differently." than I have. I forget what the line is precisely, but the the impact was like for as maybe dopey or uh emotional Ryan may be, he the, the his emotional core may have been a little more nuanced uh than than you might have suspected. And now and now Shulk has uh, a new motivation to do uh to, to be courageous and, and do the sort of brave things that Ryan has been uh, organizing himself to be able to do all along. Definitely. Um, I feel like they they had different goals before. One of them was a researcher, one of them was a soldier, but now they're in alignment. They they have their capabilities and their skills. Maybe the Monado is bringing Shulk up to a level where he can be on par with more of a soldier like Ryan. We saw them at the very beginning of the game working together, but Ryan definitely had this like uh, caretaker attitude of him of like, I'm the tank, you stay over there, I'm going to get the attention, and then come in here and poke at them once I've got their attention. That was the vibe before. Now they might be a little bit more on equal footing with the aid of the Monado in Shulk's hands. Mm-hmm. And, and the shared tragedy of uh, the attack of their hometown and the loss of their friend uh we have a final little look of both dunban and dixon looking on as they watch the boys leave so despite dunban telling him to live at peace and use the gift she gave him uh he watches as shulk leaves the city and goes out into a dangerous and threatening world and dunban has the quote of saying uh seize our destiny um so he, he i'm sure he's still reeling from his uh i don't know what to call it the the draining of energy the uh, disability of having used the monado he needs mm-hmm. to recover again but um together he feels that soon he's going to join them and they're going to seize their destiny now i don't feel that dunbin has an idea of 
the destiny for him, for Shulk, for the colony or whatever, is to go kill Metalface, right? Mm-hmm. That's goal. That's a very small, limited goal. And I, I don't even know that Shulk would be like my destiny. The reason I was put on this planet was to kill Metalface, right? But Dunbin is a little bit more big picture from the sense that I'm getting. Uh, I feel, again... You know, he played coy about the Monado showing him visions, right? I feel like Dunbin knows things about Shulk, knows things about the Monado that he's not letting us in on. And we also get a, a, a shot of Dixon looking on as well. So these guys, there's something more to what's what they got going on, and they're not telling us. Right. And I have I have no idea where we're going next. Like, I don't have a clue what the next step is. There, I have no hints in front of me about what Chapter 3 is going to look like, what places we're going to visit, how many choo-choos are going to be there. I, I, I have no idea what the next, what's going on. Do you, Nate, Nate, do you have any clue what we're up to next? I have zero clue whatsoever. I just know there's going to be green fields and rocks and uh, <laughs> monsters to hunt. And quests. From- from the the promotional materials I happened across over the last ten or so years. Well, that's kind of exciting because uh, there there isn't very much seeded for what the next steps are. One funny thing I'd like to point out is uh, in that last scene on the Makeout Hill, uh, when you do the flashback, Shulk, uh, you I don't know if you would have noticed this in your game, but when they do the flashback, Shulk is wearing the armor I was wearing at the time of the original scene. So the creators of the game made a point to cache the details of what was he wearing in this scene. Let's save that so that when we draw upon the scene later, we can pull in the gear that he was wearing at the time. Fascinating. I didn't know that. Of Were you just I, wearing the starter gear? I, I probably much? was. This this probably took place before I realized there were gear sets that you could manipulate. All right, so that was Chapter 2 from Xenoblade Chronicles. Join us next time for Chapter 3. Uh, we have no idea what's going on. We can't wait to find out, and we will get the next episode out uh, promptly. If you're playing Xenoblade Chronicles along with us, we invite you to finish Chapter 3 before crushing that next episode. This has been a production of Hero with a Thousand Potions, recorded on friday january 15th 2022 uh we have an email hero with a thousand potions at gmail.com that's one zero 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 potions other socials like discord twitter and similar we should have up by the time you are this this is in your earballs you're nate i'm tyler and nate lay on one excellent parenting trick on me right now okay give me a second uh, the the best tip I can give is to develop your intuition and your relationship with the child instead of just relying on guides and advice of others. Those can be helpful, but you're going to need your own wheelhouse of skills and interactions that you've developed with your child. That sounds really hard.
either somebody above them or he crafted him for himself a visage. A visage? A what? Is that a right word? Like Am a, I saying that? A visage? V-I-S-A-G-E? Am I saying that right? Visage? Visage. Okay. I'm, I'm it, usually I, the word police, but I'm not. I don't actually know about. I I might one. be tainted from. Uh, there's a RuPaul's Drag Race with uh, Miss, Michelle Visage on it. Maybe <laughs> right? she, maybe her name is pronounced wrong and Visage is right. So I thought uh, you were doing a Legend of Dragoon poll. Ether either, ether either, <laughs> ether either, yeah. ether either. In which metal face is it really metal face let's look it up i think it's metal face i, I can did, hardly did we... I, i'm saying the words and i can't even believe them coming out of my mouth when either that or we did a whole segment where i uh said the wrong I, shit. I, it probably is whatever it doesn't even matter i don't know i would hope it doesn't fuck up but if it does we'll just live with it i'm nate whoa i'm not nate Cut this. <laughs> Excuse me. Oh, fuck, I snorted.